midst of World War II, C.S. Lewis gave four radio broadcasts over the BBC, which would later be compiled into a book entitled Mere Christianity. This book inspired my journey to know why I believe what I believe. Welcome to Bear Christianity. In 1945, a shepherd named Muhammad Ali was digging in Nag Hammani, Egypt. Now, his shovel struck an earthenware pot, which was sealed. Dreaming of jewels and precious metals, the shepherd was disappointed to discover that this pot just had some old scrolls in it. Now, if you listen to the episode about the Dead Sea Scrolls, this story has some similarities, but these scrolls contained some books which became known as the Gnostic Gospels. And every Easter, you can probably find a TV special or a magazine article featuring the Gnostic Gospels as you know, revealing the true historical Jesus. And so this idea was made even more famous by one of the best-selling novels of all time. I've mentioned it a bunch, The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. So in The Da Vinci Code, I'm gonna, we're going to start the day off with a quote here. So Teabing, which uh, he's one of the characters in The Da Vinci Code and supposedly an expert church historian, he is telling Sophie, one of the other characters, about the origins of Christianity. And they're talking about the Council of Nicaea, which um, he said, you know, Constantine got all the church leaders together. And so that's sort of the context of the, con- uh, the conversation. And so Teabing says this, More than 80 Gospels were considered for the New Testament, yet only a relative few were chosen for inclusion, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John among them. And Sophie says, who chose which Gospels to include? Teabing replies, the fundamental irony of Christianity, the Bible as we know it today, was collated by the pagan Roman emperor Constantine the Great. Teabing goes on to say, because Constantine upgraded Jesus' status almost four centuries after Jesus' death, thousands of documents already existed chronicling his life as a mortal man. To rewrite the history books, Constantine knew he would need a bold stroke. From this sprang the most profound moment in Christian history. Teabing paused, eyeing Sophie. Constantine commissioned and financed a new Bible which omitted those gospels that spoke of Christ's human traits and embellished those gospels that made him godlike. The earlier gospels were outlawed, gathered up, and burned. An interesting note Langdon added. Now, Robert Langdon is like the Tom Hanks character in The Da Vinci Code. And he says, Anyone who chose the forbidden gospels over Constantine's version was deemed a heretic. The word heretic derives from that moment in history. The Latin word hereticus means choice. Those who chose the original history of Christ were the world's first heretics. Now, growing up in a Christian home, church, school, I was given a Bible at an early age. It was one book, but actually it's a collection of 66 books. And I didn't think that each of those books was written at different times and all that stuff. I wasn't thinking about that as a kid growing up. So how do I know that I have the right books? And why did this novel, The Da Vinci Code, seem to rattle the Christian community? I mean, so much so that there was kind of an unspoken rule in the Christian community that you shouldn't read The Da Vinci Code. So that's what we're going to talk about today, the canon, the new, and specifically the New Testament canon. Why does the New Testament in our Bibles contain the books that it does? So here's today's outline. I'm going to go over just some basic definitions I'm going to talk about difficult truths about the early church and as it involves the canon. And then we're going to talk about the Gnostic Gospels versus the New Testament Gospels. 
And then when did the early church begin viewing the New Testament books as scripture? So you can connect with me by email. It's bearchristianity at gmail.com. Send in comments, questions, anything like that. You can follow me on Instagram at the real bear Martin. And then this is usually where I ask for like five star ratings on the podcast app that you listen to. Somebody told me this week that you can't rate it on Spotify. So if you have Spotify and you've been looking for that feature or whatever, I appreciate the time you put into that, but evidently it doesn't exist on Spotify. And thank you to all those people out there who have given this podcast a five-star rating. Now let's get into a special segment of each show. It's called A Bear in the Woods. And here's the question for the day. Bear, what's a movie your kids watch all the time that gets on your nerves? This is a really common question. And every parent of small children out there knows that there are certain things that you're just like, oh, no, not again, you know. Uh, but so there there are plenty. But one that just has always bothered me is actually the movie Frozen. Now, I like a lot of things about the movie, especially the song Summer by Olaf the Snowman. Very clever lyrics there. Love that song. Anyway, here's the thing that's bothered me about Frozen, Okay. And, and by the way, this is a spoiler alert. So if you haven't seen Frozen and you want to save the, the surprise, you know, skip ahead like maybe two minutes or so. Anyway, <clears throat> Prince Hans and Anna seem to hit it off at, at when they first meet. And they meet kind of by accident. They sort of bump into it, one another. And then Hans ends up like falling into the, the lake. And so he, he falls into the water, and but they've just had like this cool little moment where as a viewer, you think, okay, this, this is going to be like a, a couple that's going to fall in love. And as Anna's walking away, so nobody, nobody can see Hans except the people like me and you. We're watching the movie, but Anna can't see him. So we're basically getting like a little glimpse into the private emotions of Hans. And so he's like still sort of treading water, and, he's, and Anna's walking away. And he looks at her as if he's falling in love. It's like this sweet, innocent smile that he's that he's falling in love. Okay, so keep that in mind. Now, towards the end of the movie, we find out that Hans is actually the bad guy. He is the youngest um, sibling, and he has twelve older brothers. So his chance of reigning as king um, in his family's kingdom is just not going to happen. And so his plan is to find another kingdom to be king of. And so he's deceived the people of Arendelle. They they trust him. Um, everybody trusts him. And so then he turns on Anna and Elsa. And, and then he reveals like this evil plan. Now, here's the thing that bothers me. The, the writers, in showing us this sweet, innocent, I'm falling in love with her smile, that's supposed to be his private emotions. Now, if his private emotions were to be devious and overthrow the kingdom, then he should not have this sweet, innocent, I'm falling in love with you smile when no one else is, is watching. You know, so you may think, good night, Barry, you are being ridiculous. But it just bothers me. It's, it seems very inconsistent um, in the way that they've portrayed Hans. Now, obviously, they're trying to trick the viewer because you want that they want to have this big surprise that Hans is actually the bad guy. But I think the best story, the best books, the best movies are the ones where where when you look back, you realize, okay, the author actually gave me everything that I need to sort of figure it out. And and but they also sort of crafted it in a way where it was hidden from me. Whereas in this regard, they just simply lie. It's like a, a cheap trick to deceive us instead of 
doing it in a different way where we could say we could say okay like looking back we could say oh I see they were sort of showing us that I just didn't recognize it does that make sense anyway it's always bothered me about the movie Frozen I think Disney should redact all DVDs and Blu-rays they should change that scene and then they should replace those free of charge also I would like a public apology from those involved with the movie on portraying Hans in an inconsistent way so uh, that is just my opinion, and this has been A Bear in the Woods. Before we really get going, usually I try to, to use several different resources and, and um, read and listen to lots of different things in preparing for an episode. But my main resource for this one is a guy named Michael Kruger, Dr. Michael Kruger, that's K-R-U-G-E-R, he is excellent when it comes to canon-type stuff. So this is a combined Bears, Books, and Biscuits. So as far as book recommends, there's there's three that I've read, but he's he's written some other ones that I've actually asked for for Christmas because I really like this guy. Anyway, it's uh, The Heresy of Orthodoxy, Canon Revisited, and then this is a great one. If you are looking for a gift idea for a high schooler especially or like a college student, Surviving Religion 101 by Dr. Michael Kruger is excellent. It, he he wrote it for his daughter, who's, who uh, recently, I think over the last few years, maybe started at UNC, and so she's going to a secular college, and so he wrote it for her, and uh, it's just it's wonderful in, in giving a lot of basics on defending the Christian faith, and so I, that's a great um, gift idea. And then also, his website is michaeljkruger.com. And then his blog is called Canon Fodder, but Canon, and every time I say Canon today, it's it's C-A-N-O-N. There's one N in the middle. Uh, two N's in the middle would be like the boom Canon, but um, the Canon as far as Old and New Testament Canon is spelled different. Anyway, uh, michaeljkruger.com, and there's lots of blog posts and articles. I'm going to link a f- two articles in the episode notes, 10 basic facts about the New Testament Canon that every Christian should memorize and 10 misconceptions about the New Testament canon. So lots of information on that website. And then there's a, a search bar. It took me a while to find it, but you can search for for things on the website. And the search bar is like on the right-hand side, and you have to scroll down a little bit. But you could you know, just type in anything there, and, um, and it'll search all the different blog articles and pull up the ones that are relevant to your search. So it's excellent resource for all of this stuff. Now, the word canon refers to a measuring rod. So you can think of canon as being a standard. So books in a canon will meet that standard. And and this is not just a Bible type thing. There's actually uh, Star Wars fans. There's a Star Wars canon. So there's lots of books that are written sort of in, in the Star Wars universe, but only certain books are considered canon. Uh, now, so canon, that's our first definition. Another one that we're going to talk about a lot today is apocryphal writings, apocryphal writings. So the apocryphal writings are any writing, mainly from the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries, which share genre or content with the New Testament books, all right? And so now you've got to distinguish between the apocrypha. The apocrypha are books that are included in the Roman Catholic Old Testament canon. So it's some extra books. Protestants don't have them in their Bible, but Roman Catholics do. More on that in a later episode, but that's the Apocrypha. 
And those were all written prior to Jesus' birth. Now, apocryphal writings or apocryphal books, or sometimes called apocryphal gospels, those are all like early Christian-themed writings. And again, those are mostly written in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries, okay? Now, not all of these apocryphal writings were bad or deviant versions of Christianity. Some of them were very useful in the church and used a lot, but they were not given the status of Scripture. So apocryphal writings or apocryphal books, that's like this broad category of basically any sort of Christian writing in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century that's not Scripture, not considered Scripture. A subset of that, a smaller portion, would be the Gnostic Gospels, which I mentioned earlier. And these are Gospel accounts that are associated with a a belief system called Gnosticism. And again, when I say Gnostic or Gnosticism, there's a silent G at the beginning of that, all right? And, And these Gnostic Gospels, these were the scrolls that I mentioned earlier found in Nag Hammadi, Egypt. And don't worry, we'll get into Gnosticism. Okay, let me talk about some difficult truths in regards to the early church and the canon, all right? The New Testament canon was not in the form we have it today, which is 27 books, until near the end of the 4th century. So there were some there were some debate about whether we should include certain books in the canon. Now, honestly, church history is quite messy. I mean, many of the early church fathers disagreed on certain books and also certain doctrines. And so it's pretty easy to find a quote from an early church father that seems to support whatever idea you're looking for, you know, basically. And so if you are a Christian, do not be bothered if you read or hear a troubling quote from some well-known early church leader, okay? Sometimes they are being quoted out of context. Now, that happens too, uh, but sometimes it's it's just, it was messy. And so in the early centuries of Christianity, they had to work through a lot of different issues and various false versions that were trying to mimic Christianity. And also, you know, it was just tougher for ideas to get passed around then. They had to write, and then their information had to be copied and spread throughout the world for other scholars to read it and then assess, and then they had to write back, essentially. So it took a long time to uh, sort of... Um, put ideas together and and have other like if I have um, if I'm studying my Bible and I come across something that's troubling, it is so easy for me to pull up YouTube and see lots of different opinions on maybe what that Bible verse means. Um, there, there's just tons of resources that I have at my fingertips, and it sort of helps me from from going too far down a, an error path. Okay, but if you're sort of isolated or it takes a long time. You know, you just don't have all that information at your fingertips. So it, 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 the, the process of sort of unifying certain doctrines and ideas, it, it took a little while because they, they had to sort of bounce these ideas off of one another. So here's how I think about it. Uh, these controversies and debates over doctrine and canon helped strengthen the core beliefs of Christians that, that, that we hold today. And so it was a struggle that made Christianity stronger. Over time, Christians had to keep going back to Scripture and develop their beliefs, not on their personal opinions, but what on they considered the Word of God. The early church fathers argued from Scripture. In fact, some of these written arguments are ways we determine what books they considered Scripture. They were appealing to writings which, in their opinion, held the same power as Old Testament Scriptures. And so church history, it was not as clean as Christians would like it to be, but it's also not as messy or 
conspiracy-ridden as the Da Vinci Code or, or skeptics of Christianity claim it to be. And so I just want you to be aware of that. If you're a Christian, uh, just be aware that that there are certainly different ideas about what books should be included and also some different doctrinal things, especially in early on in Christianity. And that's okay. Now, with regard to the canon, even in those cloudy first few centuries, there was always a core set of books, well accepted and often appealed to as Scripture. So the bad news is this. The development of the New Testament canon was not a super clean process, especially early on. And some books were debated for a while until they were considered canon. All right. And and, and also some books were thought to be in the canon, but later rejected. Okay. Now, the good news is that there was a core set of books essentially considered scripture from the very beginning. And these core books contain all of the main doctrines of Christianity. So hang on to that little nugget, but that's that's very helpful for a Christian um, struggling with this kind of idea. So let's talk about these Gnostic Gospels versus the New Testament Gospels that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so I don't have time to cover the reason that we all 27 books are included in the New Testament canon. They A lot of them have kind of their own debate history, and I refer you back to Michael Kruger's website, and you can read up on all of that stuff if you're interested, or, or a certain book. Um, so what I'm going to do is talk about why the four Gospels are included, and hopefully that gives us that gives you a uh, an idea of how the other books are approached as well. So remember, the Da Vinci Code claimed that Constantine picked the books of the New Testament at the Council of Nicaea. I've discussed the Council of Nicaea in previous episodes. Let me r- remind you of a few things. It was in 325 AD. The main focus was to discuss Arianism. Arianism was a teaching that was growing in popularity, and it stated that Jesus was not eternal, that he was the first of God's creation. And so Orthodox Christianity holds that Jesus is eternal. See John 1, verses 1 through 3 for a very clear passage, you know, defending why Christians believe Jesus is eternal. Now, the Council of Nicaea had nothing to do with the canon. There was no vote on the canon or collecting and burning any of these apocryphal gospels or anything like that. So this quote in the Da Vinci Code is just completely false. Yet it is a widely held belief among people who just don't take the time to look into it. Now, there were some regional church councils, such as Carthage and Hippo, which made declarations of the canon later in the 4th century. But these declarations were simply that. They were declaring which books were already considered scripture. Here's another quote from this teabing character in the Da Vinci Code. Uh, He's showing Sophie a book, and he says, These are photocopies of the Nag Hammadi and Dead Sea Scrolls, which I mentioned earlier the earliest Christian records. Troublingly, they do not match up with the Gospels in the Bible. And so he's saying that these Gnostic Gospels and then also the Dead Sea Scrolls are are part of the earliest Christian record. Now, I've already covered the Dead Sea Scrolls, but remember, that was Old Testament manuscripts. There, There are not New Testament manuscripts or Gospels about Jesus as part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So that's just an error. Um, now, the other scrolls mentioned are these Nag Hammadi Gnostic Gospel scrolls. So Gnosticism, Gnostics believed every human has a divine spark. Basically, we are divine, but we're trapped in our physical bodies. In Gnosticism, salvation is found by having gnosis or special knowledge about your true self being divine. And this allows one to escape the entrapments of the physical world 
and become your true divine self. Now, you can imagine people critical of New Testament Christianity. They just love these Gnostic Gospels. I mean, think about this. You are divine. You are amazing. You have unbelievable potential, but you are trapped by the physical world. Escape the trap and realize your full potential. I mean, that sounds like something you can hear every day on daytime TV. Uh, New Testament Christianity says you are a sinner and an enemy of God who desperately needs a Savior. Now, which option do you think people are going to gravitate towards, okay? So that's one of the reasons these Gnostic Gospels are are um, so loved by a lot of Chris, critics of, of Christianity. So the Gospel of Thomas is, uh, Michael Kruger calls it the darling of, of the Gnostic Gospels with, with critical scholars. There are no stories in the Gospel of Thomas. It's just 114 sayings of Jesus, and these sayings are called logions. And so the Gospel of Thomas, again, around Easter or whatever, you know, these big magazines may have a special on the Gospel of Thomas saying that it portrays the the true Jesus, right? So logion 3 says this, but the Jesus says, but the kingdom is within you and is outside of you. When you know yourselves, then you will be known, and you will know that you are the sons of the living Father. So again, it just sounds very good to people. They just like to hear that they are, they have this, um, they just need to realize their true potential, you know, as, as being divine. Also, a reason that people love the Gnostic Gospels is we, we all love a conspiracy story. And so w- when you can say, oh, the, the books we have are a big conspiracy and what we should be reading are these Gnostic Gospels, you know, people are just going to gravitate towards that. Uh, but again, in the Da Vinci Code and what you'll hear people say is that these Gnostic Gospels give us the true picture of Jesus and what Christianity was supposed to be. They, they will say things like the New Testament Gospels, they, they portray this intolerant and bigoted Jesus, but the Gnostic Gospels reveal a more loving and accepting Jesus, okay? Now, if you are a Christian like me, here is a, a little treat for you, a little nugget for you to remember. The last verse in the Gospel of Thomas, or the last logion in the Gospel of Thomas, so anytime someone wants to assert that these Gnostic Gospels give us a more accurate picture of Jesus, a more a tolerant, a more loving picture of Jesus, ask them to read the last verse of the Gospel of Thomas. It's Logion one fourteen, and it says this, Simon Peter says to them, let Mary go out from our midst, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus says, see, I will draw her so as to make her male, so that she also may be a living spirit like you males. For every woman who has become male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so there you have it. <laughs> the the uh, more the more tolerant uh, Jesus from from the Gnostic Gospels. So just you know, just keep that in mind. A lot of times, people making these claims about the Gnostic Gospels have never even read them. The Gospel of Peter is another popular one, and it has this very uh, fanciful view of the resurrection of Jesus. So when Jesus comes out of the tomb, he turns into this giant Jesus whose head reaches the sky, and then the cross comes out of the tomb. Uh, so the, the Roman soldiers put the put the cross inside the tomb with Jesus, I guess. But the cross comes out of the tomb and then begins to speak. And so remember, you know, Tebing is saying that these Gnostic Gospels are portraying the original Jesus, the historical Jesus, who's just a mortal man, according to the Da Vinci Code. Um, yet we, you know, we have this very fanciful version of the Gospel of Peter, another Gnostic Gospel. So it just it, it's when when you actually read them, they it doesn't align with the the narrative that's very popular. 
And also, you know, supposedly these Gnostic Gospels were written previous to the ones we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And and Constantine somehow got rid of those and then replaced them with Gospels that he wanted to be written. It's just completely false. So this brings me to an important point. The four Gospels of the New Testament were not written later. They are the earliest. So a simple reason that we have the four Gospels that are part of the New Testament canon compared to all the other Gospels is that they are the earliest ones we have. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written in the first century. They are the closest ones we have to Jesus. All other apocryphal Gospels are written later than that, second, third, fourth, and and beyond. And so, you know, it doesn't happen much, but historians almost unanimously agree that the Gnostic Gospels were not written until at least the second century. Furthermore, the New Testament Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are the only ones we have which are credibly connected directly to the apostles of Jesus. So more on this next week when I talk about who wrote the books of the New Testament. Also, we can count the number of times a book is quoted by ancient authors to kind of get a feel for how important a book was during that time. Okay, I know it's not absolutely perfect, but it, it gives us gives us a um, a rough estimate of how important books are. Rarely are the apocryphal books cited as Scripture, especially when you compare to the number of times the New Testament books are cited as Scripture. Clement of Alexandria lived from 150 to 215 A.D., and he is used as an example of an early church father who used these apocryphal Gospels in his writing. But let's look at the number of times he cites them compared to the four Gospels in the New Testament. So in Matthew, Clement uses Matthew 757 times, Mark 182, Luke 402, John 331 times. Clement is is quoting them. Now, when you look at Clement's writings, all the apocryphal gospels combined, he quotes them 16 times. So, you know, and and this Clement of Alexandria is one of the best examples that critics say, you know, oh, he used the 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 New Testament Gospels, as well as the Apocryphal Gospels. But when you look at how many times he's quoting them, clearly there's a big difference in his mind as to which ones are the most important. Eusebius was a church historian who lived in the late 3rd and early 4th centuries, and he actually attended the Council of Nicaea. Now remember, the Council of Nicaea had nothing to do with the canon, but that's, that's just the time period that Eusebius lived. In his book, Ecclesiastical History, he divided the Christian writings of the time into four main categories. The first one is the recognized books of the canon. So that included the four Gospels, Acts, Paul's letters, Hebrews, 1 John, 1 Peter, and Revelation. Now, he does have a note that some doubted Revelation, and in preparing for this episode, Michael Kruger has Revelation listed in this category as recognized books with this attached note, Um, but Another source listed Revelation in this next category, which is the disputed book. So Revelation was a little bit up in the air between these two categories. So you have the recognized books, which contains the the core of the New Testament that we have today. And then the disputed books is James, Jude, 2nd and 3rd John, and 2nd Peter. Now, notice, between these two categories, that is your New Testament today. So at the time of Eusebius, there was a general consensus about 22 of the 27 books And then the only other books that even had a chance of making it in are the other books that we now have in the New Testament. Everything else had already been rejected for various reasons. So the next category by Eusebius is the rejected books. 
These books were regarded generally as orthodox and and helpful and and useful, so they were used by the Christian community, but they were just written too late to be uh, um, attributed to the apostles of Jesus. And so for that reason, they were rejected as being part of the canon. And then the last category are the heretical books. Now, this is the category for the Gnostic Gospels. Eusebius calls books in this category forgeries, because they have titles of these famous apostles, but they were written way too late to be directly associated with them. So that's where you get the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of the Twelve. So people would just write these books and then attach a famous person to their title uh, to try to get them credibility. So the important thing to remember is that the majority of the New Testament books were well-established, and this core of books contained the main doctrines of Christianity— Around five other books were being debated, but it certainly was not this giant free-for-all that's suggested by the Da Vinci Code. So let's jump. Uh, that's, that's Eusebius writing, you know, roughly 325 and uh, somewhere around that time period. But let's jump closer to the time of Jesus. So Irenaeus wrote a, a book called Against Heresies around 180 AD to combat the teaching of Gnosticism and also a guy named Marcion who really did decide to kind of make up his own Bible. (laughs) So Irenaeus, in in these writings, he confirms that there are four Gospels and only four. So he's very explicit about that. Now, also in his writing, scholars believe Irenaeus accepts a similar list compared to Eusebius. And the reason they believe this is because Irenaeus refers to certain books with the phrase, it is written. So if you've been listening to this podcast for several weeks, that should sound familiar. Jesus often uses the phrase, it is written, to refer to writings of the Old Testament canon. And it seems like the, the early church kind of continued this tradition, and this is a way of, of citing something as scripture, meaning it, it has a higher authority. Also, Irenaeus, when he quotes from, from these books, he quotes as if the readers are already familiar with them and they already share his belief in their authority. He doesn't seem to be trying to convince his readers that that these New Testament books have authority. He just quotes from them as if the authority is already assumed. And this implies that certain New Testament books already carried the authority of Scripture even earlier than 180 AD when Irenaeus was writing. Around the same time as Irenaeus, we have found evidence of, it's called the Muratorian Fragment, and it also had a list of canonical books and it's similar. There are some differences, but it is very similar to the books that we've developed from Eusebius and Irenaeus. Again, it's the four Gospels, Acts, the Letters of Paul, and a handful of other books, including Revelation. And so you got this common core. Now, when did the early church begin viewing the New Testament books as Scripture? One important thing to keep in mind is that we have these specific quotes about what books belong in the canon— later on, because it's it's only then that these Gnostic Gospels and stuff like that are starting to circulate. And so the earlier we get to Jesus, the only books we really have are the, the New Testament canon books and some other writings. But, you know, there's no reason to state the canon if that's the only books you have. So if the Gnostic Gospels were not written until the second through the fourth centuries, we don't expect to find much defending the canon against them earlier than that. And, and I've just established that the middle of the second century, so around like 150, you know, we already have this core set of books. 
So even earlier than that, the Epistle of Barnabas, which is an apocryphal writing, it's a good example of one that was used by the church, but just not considered scripture because it was written too late. It was written around 130 AD, but it quotes Matthew twenty two fourteen as scripture because it introduces it with the familiar phrase, it is written, many are called, but few are chosen. Papias wrote in 125 AD, but he's writing about stuff that happened around 80 AD. So now we're back into the first century. Papias mentions the Gospels of Matthew and Mark as having apostolic authority and is familiar with some of Paul's letters, 1 Peter, 1 John, and Revelation. Papias also mentions hearing directly from people who knew John the Elder. So some believe this John the Elder is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. Clement, Bishop of Rome, so this is different from Clement of Alexandria I mentioned earlier, he wrote in, in about 95 AD, 1 Clement, and this is a letter to the church. He encourages the church to read 1 Corinthians and says that Paul wrote it in the Spirit. And so that's recognizing that this is no ordinary letter. Paul is writing in the, the Holy Spirit with the power of God. And so in his writing, Clement also alludes to Romans, Galatians, Philippians, Ephesians, and Hebrews. Going even earlier, some New Testament books cite other New Testament books as Scripture. So a popular one is 2 Peter 3, 15-16. Peter refers to Paul's letters as Scripture. And then another interesting one is 1 Timothy five eighteen. Paul writes this, For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now that is a quote from Deuteronomy 25, 4. So that's an Old Testament quote. But then Paul goes on to say, And the laborer deserves his wages. This is a direct quote from Luke 10, 7. So Paul, the author of 1 Timothy, is quoting the gospel of Luke as scripture. The apostles were regarded as the official representatives of teaching the earliest Christians about the new covenant. Remember, the, you, could, you could say the New Testament, you could translate that new covenant. And so just like with the old covenant, when God makes a covenant with people, it usually he followed it up with writings. And so you can expect that the new covenant would also have writings which describe the details of the covenant and, and teaches the people about this covenant. And Jesus actually prays for everyone who will hear the testimony of his apostles. In John seventeen twenty, he says, I do not ask for these only, talking about his apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So the New Testament, you know, these, these apostles are not going to live forever. And so the New Testament, they, it, they began writing things down so that this message could continue. Paul was also chosen as an apostle. In Acts 9.15, the Lord says this about Paul. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And recognizing his authority in Christ Jesus, Paul writes things like this in his letters. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Paul says this, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So here's a few ideas to, to wrap this up. The Bible did not float down out of heaven. God chose to write the Bible within the course of history. And, and here's an idea which will come up again in a few weeks when I talk about textual criticism. But we think that we would prefer for the early church to declare the New Testament canon books as the only official ones from the start. And we also think that we would like it if the church made one you know, copy or had the original Bible, and then they only let people copy from that one, and then they only let them take the copy with them if it was completely perfect. 
If this happened, though, the conspiracy theories would still exist. The doubters would say that the early church had complete control of the Bible and could put whatever they wanted into it, the words they wanted and the books they wanted. And so that doesn't fix anything. Instead, God allowed the New Testament books to be written by different people in various locations and their copies spread from different areas of the world. It took a while for these to circulate and for the universal church to come to a consensus Now, the good thing about it is this wipes away any legitimacy of a church-wide conspiracy theory. Although it seems messy at times, could this have been the best way for the New Testament canon to come together? So why do we end up with 27 books of the New Testament if if a a non-Christian asks you this on the elevator? The simple answer, Michael Kruger says this, the simple answer is, These were the books the earliest Christians regarded as apostolic. So that seems to be the main factor. In order for a book to be considered canonical, it needed to be written by an apostle or by a close companion of an apostle. Next week, I will talk about who wrote the books of the New Testament and what historical evidence we have. Now, for a closing verse, throughout the Gospel of John, there's a disciple referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And in John's gospel, at the very end, the disciple whom Jesus loved writes, This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. 